I think in the summer of 15 was a decision point for Russia. Uh, you know, looking back at it now, four years later, in the summer of 15, they made a decision, a strategic decision for Russia is, when will we start hacking? If they are hacking targets, that means they are making a strategic decision about how they want to influence. And so that decision had to have been made in the summer of 15, because through the fall is when you see the first real big wave of hacking attempts that, that go on. They then, you know, are doing this, they're trying it in France, they're trying it in Germany, they're hitting targets, which means for the, the Putin team, they are making a strategic calculation. What are the costs and benefits of hacking? If I, you know, if I go too far and I really anger the United States, will I suffer a retaliatory attack and is it worth it? I'm Matthew Kahn, and you're listening to the Lawfare Podcast, June 5th, 2018. Former FBI special agent and Army officer Clint Watts has spent years hunting down terrorist and Russian disinformation on the internet in his spare time. In his new book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News, Watts documents what he learned from his experience. On Monday, he sat down with Benjamin Wittes in the Jungle Studio for a conversation to talk about how terrorists, cyber criminals, and nation states use online media platforms to influence people's social and political perceptions. They talked about how Watts began tracking disinformation, what he saw, how he figured out who was making it, and what free societies can do to protect against it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 318, Clint Watts on Messing with the Enemy. Clint, your career tracks Lawfare's history in a very interesting and unusual way, which, and the book does too, actually, which is it starts out about counterterrorism and evolves toward both more conventional and more unconventional counterterrorism threats toward Russia as your career and the book goes on. That's kind of similar to lawfare, right? right. We started out, uh, we still do the traditional counterterrorism coverage, but we, you know, we've evolved back toward more conventional state to state national security problems and more unconventional media trolling. Uh, so, Let's start by just describing the trajectory of your career. Who are you and how did you come to be, you know, <laughs> at Selected Wisdom and testifying right. before Congress about the way Vladimir Putin was able to use Donald Trump? Yeah. So I was an army officer. And then when they had the big 9-11 hire, the boom, I had put in the application card in August of 2001. And back then, it used to take like two or three years for people to get in the FBI. And a lot of Army officers would make that jump. You know, they go to the FBI after they were uh, company commanders. So on 9-11, I was an infantry company commander. And I got a call, I think, in the first month, like October time frame, uh, to take the phase one test. And I was in the FBI six months later. Uh, you know, I, I passed a test. And waited, switched out of command, and then was a FBI agent uh, in Portland, Oregon. And I hated it. I, Why did you hate being an FBI agent? Yeah, well, part of it was me. I went from being, you know, uh, outside probably 75% of the time, on my own with 170 infantry guys, to 
in an office in an urban environment, uh, you know, in a cubicle trying to figure out the world. You know, it was a very it was a quick transition. The other part really was the FBI in 2002. It was in turmoil. You know, when we look back, really in turmoil, not like yeah, the president. Uh, not <laughs> the imagined per- turmoil that it's in right now. It was a very different FBI. It was still trying to figure out how do we do national security stuff. And uh, that's when Director Mueller, you know, really came on. And you, he made that transition. And so I left the FBI. I went to grad school. And I came back to the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. And I was still doing research on terrorism. I was running projects uh, up there for Special Operations Command called the Harmony Project, which is sort of focused, uh, you know, featured in the book as another version of WikiLeaks. That was the U.S. was doing WikiLeaks against Al Qaeda before WikiLeaks was WikiLeaking on the United States. We'll get States. to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, when I was there, one of the uh, deputy assistant directors of the FBI walked in, and he was looking for a counterterrorism trainers, and he didn't know I'd been an FBI agent. And uh, I laid out on the board how I would do training, and he was like, "How do you know all of this?" And I said, "Well, I might have been one of your FBI agents just a couple of years ago." And so after we got over that shock, he uh, brought me back. I started running an FBI program for JTTFs from West Point. And then by 2007, I was back working in counterterrorism division. Uh, I still had my clearances and everything. So back then, uh, they could just bring you straight back into the building. And I worked for him as like a special advisor starting in seven and then all the way up till 2012 was my last stint there. And I was always doing one of two things. I was either doing terrorist tracking and social media, working on special operations command projects, or I was doing, you know, FBI intel reform, field intelligence groups, those sorts of things. And uh, pairing the two of them together was kind of great. That's how I got onto all of this stuff was I would get to work with the academic community some. I got to work inside the building and sort of understand what the government people were struggling with. And then I could also work with, like, the military folks that I used to know. And I got to know what they were searching for in terrorism. And that's why I stumbled into this kind of, you know, by 2013, I was tracking terrorists mostly from my house. So you didn't hate it the second time? Second time, I did not. I, you know, it really speaks to the culture. But you were even more indoors. I know, I know. Cooped up in an urban environment. Well, I think it's a couple of things. I was better educated. Um, I probably matured in my counterterrorism. Like I just knew, I learned so much in grad school that I wish I had known the first time when I was an agent. And when I look at those two worlds, uh, the second time when I went back, we were converting into an intelligence-led organization. That was Director Mueller's vision and really what it is today and why everyone should, on the Trump team should be so scared. It's, you know, it's very strategic. Uh, it was more about source development it's what you imagine the FBI to be. Uh, the FBI of 2002 was still bank robbers, the movie Heat, you know, running people, <laughs> bank robbers down. It had that mindset, which was reactionary. Uh, and by 2007, it was on the way to being more intelligence-driven. I think that's really shown in their improvement of counterterrorism, you know, since 9-11. It's, it's so drastically different than those first days after 9-11. So when you say by 2012, 2013, you're working out of your house, tracking terrorists on social media. Yeah. Who was Clint Watts in 2012, 2013? I mean, now we're getting into what the book's about. But what, like, what were you professionally at that stage? I was a consultant. I had actually started working at a consulting uh, organization in Boston there for about a year. Um... I was doing defense consulting, and I started a blog, uh, I think it was in 2010, 
which was like what it's called selected yeah, get, yeah it's for, called for selected those, wisdom for those listeners who've never that's what the twitter handle from so it was called selected Will, wisdom and will mccants was the one who encouraged me to do this so will mccants for listeners who don't know is a former brookings colleague of mine and uh, uh, a, a fabulous expert on uh all things uh, ISIS, as well as uh, a historian of medieval Islam. Yeah, and so Will was like, "You got to just go ahead and write this stuff down because you're, you know, you're getting frustrated." I'd always been a ghost writer, you know, in your government days, you're always, you know, writing up analysis and stuff like that. And so I started just writing up what I thought the future of Al Qaeda was going to be. Uh, I had done a prediction about when I thought Bin Laden would be killed, so I, I was about four or five months months out in front of that. And I was doing polling. I used to do a lot of uh, polling online, so just surveying different people. And I, I started developing different techniques for crowdsourcing. So the idea with crowdsourcing was if everybody contributes, like Yelp, then you'll know what the best restaurant was. But every time you did it for national security stuff, it usually was wildly off because people would just kind of pick the status quo over and over. So I developed a technique, which I actually wrote up for the CIA, called the Wisdom of Outliers which was how do you get in front of leading currents in national security. And I was usually in social media to do that. And I was actually putting out forecasts and terrorists on Twitter would tell me how I was wrong. And I would use that to actually correct whatever my analysis was and put that back out there. And so I was mostly doing Al-Qaeda versus ISIS tracking. This is in uh, 13 and 14, uh, just looking at where foreign fighters were going. But my day job was doing consulting in the private sector. Uh, mostly for financial institutions. Uh, I teach law enforcement organizations and, and law enforcement groups, uh, intelligence-led policing and counterterrorism. I would do that sort of ad hoc as it came up. New Jersey State Police has always been a, a, a client I have for about eight years, and that's kind of how I pieced it all together. I was getting paid nothing, but I was getting read more, which is kind of curious about D.C. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's the way it works. So um, at some point, the issues for you shifted from terrorist tracking to the medium through which you were tracking the terrorists. That is the use of social media in national security contexts. This strikes me as a classic medium is the message kind of moment. So walk us through how you go from tracking Omar Hamami in Somalia on Twitter to really focusing on Twitter. Right. It started really going all the way back to the Green Revolution of Iran, if you remember. That was the first sort of one where the U.S. government started getting excited about uh, social media is the pathway for revolution, you know, and this sort of uprisings. And then everybody got surprised by the Arab Spring. So I had been doing a lot of analysis around why do certain countries, you know, rise up, get on social media and show up, and others it just sort of peters out. So if you remember, it was Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and then it was kind of Yemen, and then by Syria, it's still going on today, it was petering out. So that's how I kind of got there in the beginning. And then it was, look at all of these ISIS guys that were becoming ISIS, that were just inspired by the Syrian conflict, but got honed and organized into this Islamic state. And, and really, they overtook al-Qaeda, much in the same way the Arab Spring toppled dictators. It was social media populism. You know, it was jihadi in this case. But they overtook 
Zawahri, who's in Pakistan, just shouting, hey, don't listen to all those guys. I'm in charge. And really, they just created their own thing, and they did it. And it, and it rose up so much faster than al-Qaeda. And so when I was watching that, I had written an article in Foreign Affairs with uh, Will McCants and Mike Duran. And it was about, okay, if we're going to use soft power, if we're not going to deploy troops to Syria— um, when we are thinking about this, should we negotiate with Islamist groups to try and get them away from al-Qaeda, like as a, as a technique? As soon as I wrote that, that was the first time I started getting trolled by these just pro-Assad accounts, just endless trolling. And I had been trolled and I'd seen trolling before, but this was the first time I had seen it on such a wide scale and so persistently, saying the same phrases night and day. Uh, appearing to be from almost all over the planet, you know, wanting to share the same message. And that's what got me onto it. And I had always worked on and off with Jan Berger and Andrew Weisberg, and they could see it too from their own context. And we literally just got together ad hoc because we would get curious about these things to see who is organizing what's going on on Twitter. You know, what what is this? Because it doesn't it's not terrorist, and it doesn't really look Syrian because it, it maps back to other countries, and it's definitely not real Americans or Europeans. And that's really where it start and it started. And about a month and a half after that is when we saw the Alaska Back to Russia petition start showing up in those uh, troll armies that essentially are on Twitter. And a lot of times they would tweet in Russian. <laughs> so, so to this day, I still get people go, well, you don't know it's the Russians. How do you know? Well, they did speak in Russian. <laughs> and the petition on the White House website was Alaska back to Russia. So that's how we got from one to the other. And I, I could tell right away that what ISIS was doing at the time, you remember, 13, 14, was extremely dynamic. We'd never seen anything in social media like that. This was next level because it was designed to look like something else, and it was designed to move the audience. They weren't trying to recruit people. They were trying to shape their thinking. And so to be clear, the you were um, the shift that you saw was the use of these bot army, troll armies, uh, by something in not to recruit. Right. Um, and not to, uh, and that wasn't being done by Assad, but was being done by some other actor on behalf of Assad. Exactly. To persuade people. Yeah, and the message was always Assad is the only buffer to terrorism. You know, we need Assad to stay in power so that we can push away ISIS, so we can push away Al Qaeda. He is the stabilizer. Which at the time, in 14, that was not popular. This is when we were talking about Assad is probably going to fall and we'll do regime change and we'll replace him. That was not a very common argument. The other thing that came up in that was the Syrian electronic army was at its peak then. And these accounts, uh, you know, a troll army has really got three characters. One is, I call them the hecklers. These are the people that just yell at you endlessly. And they are either pushing an agenda trying to win allies online or they're trying to push down opponents. And we see this today, you know, by all sorts of actors. The others were these honeypot accounts, which were either attractive looking women or political partisans. They were trying to befriend people in the audience. And if you looked at their network right behind it, it overlapped strongly with accounts associated with the Syrian electronic army. These were hacker accounts. And so the technique back then was, I'm a honeypot. I, I need to DM you something, you know, very important. I DM you and suddenly your account is taken over. And that was a very strategic way. And you can map those out. But what was always curious was they always pushed the same content 
at roughly the same time from the same sources. And that's when you start to get to attribution. Kind of like with hacking, attribution is you watch them break into you know, a string of accounts or a lot of different targets. You find their signatures and then you map that back to the actor. But with influence, it's much the same. You just track all of the content and all of the content vectors and there's only one entity that at the end of the day would want to talk about all of these issues and that would have been Russia and that's how we got onto it probably in the summer summer of 14 is when I was quite confident this is where it was coming from and when did you realize that this influence operation by Russia through this mechanism was a thing that we needed to be paying attention to. I mean, it was kind of something that you were sort of figuring out. But there comes a point where you realize, hey, wait a minute, this is actually what my career is about now. Yeah. When did that happen? <laughs> I mean, it was. I don't. I don't think was... my career became about it until the day after I testified. I, I think you and I had joked one time. I was interviewing for other jobs because it, it was a giant failure. You know, from like a. Uh, uh, this is my focus, but it would have been in 2015. I was skeptical as well. When you look at just an individual tweet, oftentimes it seems dumb and you think no one's really buying into this. But what they did do through 14 is they were really doing capability development. They were figuring out how all the pieces work together. And the test grounds were two. One is Ukraine, which uh, Rick Stengel from State Department does a great job of talking about what he was seeing, you know, in the Ukraine, it was highly similar to what we happen to be observing in the Syria context, which was how do you pair hackers with influence people to change a population's perception, you know, to, to do active measures, which is to win by the force of politics rather than the politics of force. In 15, it was interesting because towards the end of 14, end of 15, they were trying to shift all their messaging to U.S. political and domestic issues, which is odd because... It was all Russian foreign policy up to that point. But the tell in influence business is always once you win an audience, you don't want to let it go. This is the difference between hacking and influence. You can you can ultimately hide hacking if you want, if you're if you're very cautious and you're not too aggressive. But in influence, once you win an audience, it's too valuable and you don't want to let it go. So you start to pivot those personas once they have ten or twenty thousand followers towards new topics and new audiences, your agenda changes. And that's when it starts to not make sense. You know, who is this person who looks like they're in Ohio or wherever it might be? Who's obsessed with who's a, Syria. Who's right? a, who wants to talk about Venezuela today and right. Bahrain tomorrow. And But Syria is always there. And what about what happened in Ukraine? You know, it's just what audience wants that? And in 15, they were focused on domestic politics. What the Russians really understand, and I think people got just a glimpse of from the Facebook ads, which was really the smallest and probably least significant effort, you know, of the Russian social media campaign, was you infiltrate audiences on social issues by playing both sides. And what they were doing was testing out all audiences that had something divisive either towards each other or towards the elected officials and institutions. And so you would see them testing out these themes and narratives in a very deliberate way. And a lot of them didn't stick. That's why you'll, when you look back now, people will be like, well, why did they go after this? Well, they didn't, it didn't work, and they abandoned it, and they went to something else and focused on it. And I didn't believe it till the summer of 15, when the Jade Helm 2015 military exercise was going on down in the southwest of the United States. There was already a conspiracy theory out there, but they were amplifying it to such a point that I could see 
what I knew were unwitting, you know, Americans and just social media personas jumping into this fear around Jade Helm 15. And then the other thing that concerned me is you could see people showing up at protest, you know, or showing up at press conferences. Uh, there was, I think, an Army lieutenant colonel down in Texas doing a briefing. He had to answer questions about this conspiracy. Uh, the governor of Texas, you know, was putting observers to make sure that martial law wasn't declared. Whether he was doing that because he believed it or because it was just to calm down the public, either way, that's a pretty devastating, that's a behavior change. And an influence, that's the ultimate goal, is to create a behavior change in your audience. And that was the first time I started getting scared that this was real. All right, so let's talk about the objectives from the point of view of the adversary here. So I get why the Russian state wants to shape public opinion about Syria because it has an ally. It wants to support its ally in this particular proxy war. It actually has a military base in Syria that it is very important to it. Um, But I don't get what is in it for the Russian state to gin up a conspiracy theory about a perfectly routine U.S. military exercise in its own sovereign territory that doesn't threaten anybody outside the United States. It just seems like a weird kind of interstate nihilism uh, that's almost like, uh, you know, the kid in class who sticks out his foot to trip another kid walking, you know, through the classroom to go to the bathroom or something. Uh, And I'm trying to figure out what is the broad strategic objective of having these influence armies that you then have to deploy on things that very profoundly don't matter. Right. So they do two things. There's the issues that they create and the issues they just take advantage of. So I'll use a terrorism context. If you remember back to the war on terror, we were talking about moderate voices at one time. That was our big thing. Can we identify uh, individuals in the Muslim world who are moderate imams or uh, clerics that will speak a nonviolent form of Islam that we can promote and amplify. And the idea was if we put more water, you know, in the ocean, it will dilute out this jihadist strain. Theirs is very similar in that sense, but reversed. They want to create chaos. They want us to always be either fighting with each other and most importantly, to be antagonistic towards our elected officials and all the principles in democracy. So when they see something like Jade Helm, let's say it's just a conspiracy that's in the wild, this is an anti-government, anti-military, anti-Obama at the time message that they can just amplify. And that amplification, when they are successful at it, helps in, you know enlist them as allies in these information armies so that later when they really want to push a narrative, uh, for example, the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which we run to track, you'll always see hashtags that look like they mirror uh, conservative audiences. But what you look at in the URLs that they're sending is RT and Sputnik News. And so you say, why are they using hashtags um, that say whatever, you know, support Trump or sometimes even the left, but the message is always pro-Ukraine or pro-Syria or there's something in there about ending NATO or the EU. Why do they do that? Well, they're using that infiltration, this 
notion of conspiracy to get inside these audiences so later they can influence them in the direction that they want them to go. And that's really what they were doing in 15, like pushing into 16, was going from social issues to political issues. So Jade Helm 15 is just kind of a placeholder. Keep, yeah. keep, keep the, the universe engaged, keep the bot armies engaged uh, with something that's mildly divisive in a, and conspiratorial. Keep them growing on that basis. And then when you actually need it, it's there. Yeah. The the active measures playbook, uh, even the U.S. Information Agency, when they mapped it out during the Soviet era, there were always four sets of themes. Social issues were one. Political issues were another. Financial issues would pop up sometimes. The capitalism would fail or national debt is a crisis that's going to destroy the country. And then the other one is just straight up fear, which is calamitous messages. So fears of nuclear war or a global warming uh, crop devastation. That sort of influence was focused on, hey, if you can scare an audience, the next thing you deliver them, they're more likely to believe. Because when you're scared, you will you will jump to whatever your biases are. You will play back into – and you will take in information that you might normally screen out. They kind of know this psychologically because they've done it so much to the Russian people. They've tested this out so well and so fluidly on their own population that they're now able to export that that system basically around the world with social media. So summer of 15, you realize that this is the, that this really is the issue. It's not, it's, it's how, it's not how terrorists are using social media, though that's interesting. It's how major nation state actors and one in particular is leveraging large numbers of people, many of them unwitting, uh, as as influence dupes. Right. Talk about the Russian reaction as you started developing this idea. I think in the summer of 15 was a decision point for Russia. Uh, you know, looking back at it now, four years later, in the summer of 15, they made a decision, a strategic decision for Russia is, when will we start hacking? If they are hacking targets, that means they are making a strategic decision about how they want to influence. And so that decision had to have been made in the summer of 15, because through the fall is when you see the first real big wave of hacking attempts that, that go on. They then, you know, are doing this. They're trying it in France. They're trying it in Germany. They're hitting targets, which means for the, the Putin team, they are making a strategic calculation. What are the costs and benefits of hacking? If I, you know, if I go too far and I really anger the United States, will I suffer a retaliatory attack? And is it worth it? They... I believe they had made a decision that we have infiltrated enough audiences in the Western democracies that we're going to go on this elections campaign, you know, starting with Brexit to the United States, France, and then Germany. We're going to go all the way through this and we're not going to stop. So from their perspective, I don't know if they had like a number on it the way we do here in the United States or if it was just a gut decision. They decided to go ahead and push forward. Uh, And to me, it's fascinating that they knew they had to be in the audience space 18 months to two years out. They knew they had to hack at least a year out because you have to get the information. You have to know how you're going to use it, you know, when it comes into the election cycle. And then they knew how to really amplify that and when to amplify that in the summer of 16. So I think at least 18 months out, they made a decision, we're going to do this and and we're going to move forward on the United States. Before we get to Donald Trump, uh, I want to... I want to ask 
for your kind of candid assessment of whether they are principally good or whether they are principally lucky. Um, I can kind of tell the story either way. Right. Right. Um, and it's possible that it required a certain level of facility and conceptualization and a whole lot of luck. But when you look at the influence operations that they've run more generally, how much of it do you look at and say, wow, this is just a super effective set of techniques they've developed? Uh, and how much of it do you look at and say, hey, there's a lot of Jane Helm 15 nonsense going on here right. and a lot of, you know, getting Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter people to show up for the same demonstration right. at the same time and just kind of mischief and one really big lucky hit. I actually, every time I look at it in a very tactical or, you know, acute example, I think, man, they're just super lucky. But when I look at a big picture, you know, going back all the way to Edward Snowden, really, they are persistent and they are determined and they they stick to their strategy and they see it through. It's a real uh, lesson for the Americans, I think. You know, when we look at our own policies, we don't stick with anything more than 18 months. You know, we we want to clear, hold, and build in six days. Yeah, I mean, it's just we don't do that. And so every time I think, oh, the Russians were lucky, I go, wait a second. Let's think back, you know, to the end of the Olympics in Sochi, you know, to now. They were pushing in a very deliberate way over an indefinite period with a strategy. And they may react a little bit, you know, on any given day, uh, push or pull backwards, but they're d a determined adversary. And so I see that as art. You know, it's the art of subversion on the Western world. And the biggest outcome that I see now in the influence space is not winning one election or another, but the way they've been able to unify the alt-right audiences from Germany, France, the United States, uh, Britain and the or UK and Canada, you can look and there is a alt-right nation, a social media nation out there that they don't control, but they helped to be the connective tissue which brought them all together. And you think cyberspace. that was deliberate, not a not a kind of accident of of a, a sort of accidental creation of the ecosystem that they built. It was a strategic it, it, objective. It was deliberate to divide up democratic populaces based on race, religion, social economic status, uh, social issues. It was an it. It wasn't like they set out and said, "I'm going to create an alt right nation," you know, in social media. Instead, what they do is, it, it's much like uh, Russian artillery or Soviet artillery. I learned about you know in the military, they fire everywhere on your lines, and they fire five times as much artillery as the Americans. And then as soon as they see where there's a weakness or a break in the lines, they orient all the guns to that break in the lines. And that's where they focus. That's where they penetrate through American lines. And then their next goal is to set up in your rear area and take key terrain and then make you fight them in your own terrain. That is remarkably similar to how they do information warfare, which is I'm going to test all of these audiences. But once I see that it's working in one place, I'm going to reorient all my efforts on it. And I think the all right audience was a place where they saw success, uh, and they moved to amplify that and sort of bring that together. I don't think they 
thought from the beginning, hey, let's find an audience in the alt-right and try and bring it together. I think instead they were just naturally testing out things. They were very receptive to that because the message, Putin's message is nationalism, not globalism, anti-EU, anti-NATO, anti-immigration. That matches up exactly. So it's not a conspiracy. You know, it's literally like these are our allies. I don't think they knew where they were at, but I think they do now. And so from a strategic perspective, I see their their ability to sort of infiltrate these audiences as a lever that they can push or pull in warfare whenever they need to, but not one they designed from the outset. And I think their espionage is the same way, for example, when we look at the the you know Russian collusion investigation. There, there was no collusion. Clint. Right, right. We'll, we'll get to that. So, but it's the idea that I'm always developing intel assets. I'm always developing options. I, uh, in 2013, if there's a Miss Universe pageant, I'm going to have my people in there, and they're going to make connections. If it's an NRA convention and I can get somebody in there and I can make a donation, I'm going to do that. Whereas in the U.S., we tend to make a chart, you know, over at the Pentagon. We say, we're going to do uh, Axis Blue, you know, one, two, three. Theirs isn't that way. Theirs is always build options, build influence, you know, uh, uh, vectors, and then continue to push forward so that when there is an election that pops up in 2016, I can push and pull everybody and all of my options together to actually come up with a strategy. In your now famous Senate testimony, you said that, and I think the reason it grabbed a lot of people's attention was that you said that the reason this was effective in the United States was that it had a candidate who was willing to play ball with it. Right. Um, Talk about the role of Donald Trump here and talk about to what extent all this influence operations matters if Donald Trump had been a normal Republican candidate who did not channel the messaging that these bots were, were, uh, were promoting. Right. What they do, what the Russian influence system does, what the Kremlin does from the very start is they look for three kinds of people, real-world people, uh, to advance their agenda. One is the useful idiot, which is really a Soviet-era espionage term, which is someone who unwittingly will advance your cause abroad. And they're usually driven by ego and money, coincidentally. The other is a fellow traveler. And this is somebody who thinks like the Kremlin. And it wittingly goes along with the message or the ideology and will advance it for the Kremlin. This goes back to the Soviet days. You can think about uh, Latin American dictators, those sorts of things. They would push from a socialist perspective, you know, uh, agendas. And then the others are agents, people they can directly recruit to undertake actions on their behalf. And so these people are witting and also trying to be covert oftentimes about their actions. So when you look at uh, President Trump from 15 on, uh, there was an article in Sputnik News. I, I won't forget it. I think it was August of 15. It was the first time I saw them be positive, really, about any U.S. presidential candidate. And they said, is Donald Trump the man to mend fences with, with Russia, essentially, as a question. Um, and so you look at that now, and it's like, huh, you know, they they believed in Trump before any of us believed in Trump. In, in August of 2015, this was a reality TV show. And... They saw that as a vector. You know, this is somebody who's easily ingratiated by just 
talking to him in a positive way. You saw Vladimir Putin do that all the way up to Election Day. Um, you see them tearing down Clinton. You see Donald Trump as the candidate making very pro-Russian statements, which I never heard from any presidential candidate since I've been alive, you know, going particularly from a Republican, you know, looking back at the Cold War. And so I think they saw him as a vehicle who would be open to any sort of assistance, uh, would be open to any sort of influence effort that was going on, and was not going to denounce anything that they did. And, you know, I hear a lot about the Manchurian candidate kind of conspiracies. I don't believe it at all because I, I find it would be far too great a risk for the Kremlin to try and directly elicit an agent to win the White House. We like those sort of scripts. Um, but in this case, you got a person who sees no reason why not to use anything available. He's transactional. He's an opportunist. Uh, he's ego-driven. This is a dream come true, really, for an uh, influence campaign like the, the Kremlin runs. So tell me about how your life changed when you gave that testimony. Yeah, I went from, uh, I, th- I was interviewing for jobs, I think, two days before, day before the hearing. Um, because the Russian, uh, you know, the Russian uh, material was the most fascinating I've ever worked on. You know, it was the best research project, worst business idea, because it was a giant distraction. And from a think tank perspective, you couldn't get anybody to focus on disinformation then. This was ISIS year, you know, the Ramadan wave of 2016. That's what I was working on for research, you know, predominantly. And so it was really funding my hobby of, you know, looking at the Russia stuff. And so it was like, what will I do with disinfo? And now if, when I fast forward uh, over a year, uh, I had the book, which is out now, the book proposal already written uh, when I went to the Senate and no one wanted it. I couldn't get anyone, you know, interested in Russian disinfo. And that changed within a week. Um, I've been to more disinfo conferences and, you know, fake news studying and social media. I've got to interface with social media companies in ways that I hadn't previously it always kind of been after the fact about terrorism. So it's been amazing. You know, I, I've, it's been amazing to see the pivot and the U.S. space in terms of uh, their interest and concern about it. It's also been disappointing from the U.S. government space where I still kind of sit, gosh, I think that I briefed it in government audiences two to two and a half years ago now and still nothing, you know. And I don't think it's because they don't want to. I think it's because no one's told them to yet, you know. So... Tell us about the book. So the book is... Which, which you couldn't get published. No one was yeah, interested yeah. in the proposal. And yeah, it's great. Now it's out. Yeah. And uh, HarperCollins is my publisher. They got it right away. I took I took the proposal into them first, and they, they jumped on it. Um, a lot of people wanted me to write a Russia book, you know, a Russia... Uh, election book, and I did not want to do that. Um, so, what what is the story you're telling? In so, this the book? story is really about uh, social media and influence, and how bad actors come to use social media to achieve their aims. And so, the first two chapters are really about terrorism from uh, and counterterrorism from a macro perspective, and then micro. Omar Hamami, somebody I used to talk back to, you know, a most wanted American terrorist on Twitter openly, and, and would have dialogue with them. Uh, then it shifts there to a couple chapters about Russian disinfo, how troll armies work, and what Putin's plan was. 
uh, and then sort of an assessment of you know what I think the real impact was on the election from the Russian effort. But then there we talk about WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks versus Paradise Papers, Panama Papers, some of these other transparency efforts. Why we like secret so much, and uh, the Harmony documents were Al Qaeda's secret documents, you know, that were declassified. And they're all different transparency efforts. They use different methods. And so what is the outcome? And then I conclude the book with sort of what is the future of influence? Um, and so there's two parts of it. Uh, one chapter is about U.S. government uh, and counter-influence, which I call staring at the men who stare at goats, which is, you know, how do you, <laughs> having looked at this for almost 15 years, you know, what's our options really in counter-influence? Should we even try and do this? And then what social, what I call social inception will look like. And that's Cambridge Analytica is really just the one we know about and an infant version of what's to come in, in social media influence. And like in 2018, I conclude the book with, I'm not worried about the Russians. I'm worried about everybody that saw what the Russians did that's got advanced technology can really take it to the next level. When you started doing this work, uh, the problem that you were studying was invisible. You couldn't get anybody interested in it. You know, people wanted terrorist tracking, but as you say, nobody was interested in disinformation. Right. Now everybody's interested in disinformation, fake news, and and all that. Does the problem, how much of the problem goes away because of our awareness of it uh, and how much of it is can coexist with a society that's savvy to it. Yeah. Uh, awareness is the first and biggest step. So I, I'm much uh, much more positive now than if you had had me in here a year ago in the sense that there's been so much discussion of it and so many people working on it. You, you know, counterterrorism became cybersecurity. That was the next thing we freaked out about. Disinfo became the next thing after cybersecurity that we freaked out about. And so, but awareness is the biggest step. Even during the Soviet era, the goal of the U.S. Information Agency was to out propaganda outlets and make people aware that this was going on. So I think that part's been great. My concern actually in a weird way now is for social media companies and for people and their trust and belief just in the country and in the things that they do online. Because that could have a devastating effect to our economy and towards just political participation. You get worn out. It's the information annihilation, which we talk about with our president. He just wears you out over time. And what we see in Russia from this system is probably 10 years ahead of us. The Russian people have apathy. They don't know what to believe. Everyone has one version of public relations and you know alternative facts. And when you get into that system, you just quit trying. And I, that's what I worry about today for America is if it's this intense all the time, who can stay with it and, and really fight for the country because it's exhausting. And if you don't know what to believe, you will fall back on your biases. You will retreat. And that's really Putin's goal all along was to make the U.S. retreat from the world stage. Uh, and our president, President Trump, is doing that for him. I, I mean, we are retreating like at no time in our American history. So one project that you've done to try to ventilate this yeah. is the Hamilton dashboard. Right. Um, so talk through a little bit what it is, how it works, 
and what you're what you're trying to accomplish with it and what the reception to it has been. I've noticed it's gotten some remarkably hostile reception right. from from certain quarters. And I'm just kind of interested in what what you were trying to do with it and how you assess the way it's been received. Yeah. So in its inception, it was really an idea for our own, like me and Andrew and Jam, like how can we view this influence network for us? You so, know, so first describe yeah. what it is. So it, it's, you know, several hundred Twitter accounts that we've seen tied up in Russian influence networks at one point or another. Uh, a lot of them are overt. They say, I'm a pro-Russian, you know, enthusiast. Uh, we don't know all the time whether they're directly tied to the Kremlin or if they're just loosely supportive fellow travelers, but they're part of it. The other one is definitely social bots that appear. They're tweeting at a super high volume, same content, and they have a sizable following. And then the others are somewhere in between, where are they unwitting or winning supporters who are pushing this agenda forward? And so it's a summary view, because for me, looking at Russian influence, I'm not so concerned about every single Twitter account the uh, Internet Research Agency is running. I'm looking at what is the themes and narratives they're trying to push and who are they trying to push it to? So the dashboard tracks a summary view of hashtags, keywords, and topics, and then also URLs, domains, key articles that are trending within this network at any given time. And so it is the question. This is the challenge that you mentioned with the public space. People will go there and say, oh, a hashtag is trending. Well, that might be for 10 minutes. You know, they spike up and down just like on Twitter's list on any given moment. But the idea is can you look at the audience which is being engaged, which is usually indicated by the hashtags, keywords, those sorts of things, and then look at the URLs, the domains, and the content then that is being delivered into that audience space so you can understand what is it that the Russian Influence Network wants people to believe. Most commonly, you'll see RT and Sputnik News as the top URLs at any given time. You'll see a lot of content for Syria and Ukraine still that's promoted or uh, counterterrorism alliances around Syria, you know, whatever it might be. But then occasionally you'll see these, you know, push forward in and out, which are about politics EU politics. Should the EU break up? Look what's going on in Italy right now. Isn't this a great nationalist movement? Or in the United States, it's usually a disruptive function, which would be what is an anti-Trump message or anti-Clinton or anti-elected official or anti-institution. So if you see a uh, Nunes memo pop up, that almost always is going to trend on the URLs to the very top of the dashboard because that is an attack by one institution on another institution inside our democracy. And that's a home run for a Russian influence network. Look at this corruption that's going on in the United States. You can't be trusted. They're wiretapping the president. Those sorts of conspiracies are just home runs for Russian influence because they don't even have to make up fake news. There is fake news readily available for them to employ. Talk about the reception. I, yeah. I, it, it's in it like everything in our society. The reception's been really polarized. I noticed, yeah. you know, a lot of people uh, reacted. Wow, you know, this is like the greatest thing. You can kind of see where these influence operations are, are, are right. how they're how they're developing. Uh, the certain people like Glenn Greenwald are deeply hostile to this. Right. What's the criticism and what's your response? Yeah. So on the positive side, it, it's the awareness function. 
And, you know, I've actually seen researchers out in the open then. Our challenge has always been we don't have resources or researchers to propel this any further. So I saw it as the dashboard would be a tipping and queuing sort of function. Like, hey, here's an issue. Now you can do a deep examination into this influence. You know, where is it coming from? Where did it start from? And I've seen people take that tool and sort of use it to get started. It's a jumping off point. So I've been really excited about that. On the negative side, it always jumps to this Russia-phobe thing. You are uh, the new McCarthyism. You're trying to restrict free speech, which I've always struggled to understand because we're not telling anybody what they can or cannot say. We're just trying to orient. This is a Russian influence network we've seen pop up uh, over many, many years. Uh, And so we're trying to assess why they're pushing this information and our audiences being receptive to it. Um, and so I'm a little confused by it. I don't, I'm not trying to stop anyone's free speech or free press. Um, I'm just trying to show what a network, uh, or a population in the online space that's gaining traction, uh, around a narrative is actually reading, consuming and sharing and what they're talking about. Uh, and if I, if I had the resources, I would expand it dramatically, um, but doing that sort of deep dive over an enduring basis to where you think you're on an influence network takes a lot of time. I would do them for the right and the left politically in the U.S., you know, separate from Russia. So people can understand how these I talk about in the book, these preference bubbles pop up. That's what I would like to do, like over the horizon. So it's not just about Russian disinfo. But so people can kind of see how these information networks collide, merge or overlap. Um, and so that dashboard, you know, is a first cut sort of minimum level. And I, I hope German Marshall Fund, I think, with the Alliance for Securing Democracy is going to take it, you know, one step further. And they're working on a generation two to address both the challenges, but to also make it more useful for researchers. The book is Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World with Terrorists, Hackers, Russians, and... Fake news. And fake news. Thank (laughs) you. The blog is Selected Wisdom. The Twitter feed is at Selected Wisdom. And the Hamilton Project dashboard is available to, you can find it by Googling Hamilton Hamilton 68. You'll you'll find a smorgasbord of information. Uh, Clint Watts, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Special thanks this week to Clint for coming down to the Jungle Studio. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to get on social media and influence your friends and followers to check out the podcast and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our audio editor is Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening.